30, 30, almost 40 years. What a blessing that is. And, uh, yeah. Charlie, we appreciate your faithfulness. And to have James uh, by his side for all those years, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing, too. So, Father, we thank you for these, uh, the leaders of this church, Lord. Thank you so much for Charlie and James and, and then the, the younger men that are stepping up to, to help. Lord, we thank you for Calvary Chapel, El Paso, Lord, its long legacy of uh, faithfulness to you. And, Lord, the other Calvary chapels that are represented here as well. Don't want to leave them out. We thank you for their faithfulness here in uh, West Texas, New Mexico. Lord, I just pray that they'll continue to uh, keep their, their nose to the grindstone, continue to keep their hand to the plow and not look back. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Lord, the Jesus movement is still moving. And we thank you for what you're doing all over across the country and especially in this, this area. We pray you'll continue to, to work in and through these churches in the days ahead. And Lord, I know that the backbone of each church represented here are the men. As the men go, so go the church. And so I pray that you would uh, put a holy uh, fire in us, Lord, to live for you in these last days. But we love you and ask for your blessing on our, our time this next session. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes these words, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Several years ago, quite a media stir was created by a doomsday prophet named Harold Camping. When he predicted that Jesus would return for his church on May the 21st, 2011, and those who were left behind would be plunged into great tribulation. In fact, Camping's organization spent $100 million on billboards warning people to sell their belongings and to prepare for the coming apocalypse. Of course, May the 21st, 2011 came and went. Jesus didn't return, and his church remained earthbound. But that didn't deter Harold Camping. His reaction was to recalibrate. Camping claimed that his math was off. The real date was October the 21st. But of course, on October the 22nd, once again, Harold Camping had been proven wrong. 
Actually, over the course of his ministry, Camping set a date for the rapture on 13 separate occasions. He was an incurable date setter. As they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> but Harold Camping was 0 for 13. That's not batting too good. If the man proved anything, it was that he was a false prophet. Of course, what Camping did, what he did succeed in doing, <coughs> was to provide fodder for skeptics and for late-night talk show hosts. They mocked him and the idea of a rapture. Days after October 21st came and went, David Letterman had his top 10 Harold Camping excuses. Time Magazine named Camping one of its top 10 most popular costumes for Halloween. One blogger wrote, October 21st, day for jokes, not judgment. Sadly, all Christians end up with a black eye whenever a knucklehead sets a date for the rapture. Any biblically literate person should have known that Harold Camping was off his rocker. For as I quoted earlier, Mark 13, verse 32, there none other than our Lord Jesus, speaking of his coming, told his disciples of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not even Jesus himself, while on earth, knew the exact day of his return. Evidently, all date setters presumed to know more than Jesus. I like the billboard that appeared right after the camping debacle. It read, that was awkward. <laughs> hey, before you talk about Jesus' return, why don't you pay attention to what Jesus said? That sounds like a good first step. The date that Harold Camping should have been concerned about was December the 15th, 2013. That's the date a man died and met Jesus face to face, and he had to answer for the deception that he had orchestrated. That would have been quite a meeting to attend. And yet Harold Camping wasn't the first person to predict a date for the rapture and the coming judgment. Church history is full of similar culprits. Tragically, you can go all the way back to the early church, to the second century AD, to find ignorant people making the same kind of arrogant mistakes. You know, it's interesting how our text begins here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I mean, throughout Paul's letters, there are four subjects of which he encourages us not to be ignorant. Romans 11 verse 25 tells us that Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of God's plan for the Jews. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 reads, Now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 exhorts us not to be ignorant of the role of suffering in the life of a believer. And here we're told not to be ignorant of the rapture. Don't be ill-informed about God's plan for Israel, <coughs> spiritual gifts, the redeeming role of suffering, and the rapture. And yet, isn't it amazing that 2,000 years later, there is more ignorance over those four doctrines than any other in the New Testament? 
That's why I've entitled this study, What's Up with the Rapture? For despite the bad PR and the media's sacrilegious scoffing and all the other ridicule that's been heaped on the doctrine of the rapture down through the centuries, this is still a real event spoken of in Scripture. And whether we accept it or not, it's going to happen. One day, Jesus is coming back to airlift his church from planet Earth. The key passages that deal with the rapture include 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 3 and 4, Luke 17, John 14, Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. But the most direct teaching on this subject is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When you study 1 Thessalonians, you notice each of the chapters ends with a reference to the end of the age and to the coming of Jesus. Apparently, even in the first century, at the time of its writing, this was a hot topic. And yet today, I talk to Christians who consider rapture watching a distraction. It's seen as a peripheral issue at best, at worst, an embarrassing hobby horse. But the believers in Thessalonica and in all of the early church, they lived their lives on the edge of their seats. They lived in anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus wants us to live. <coughs> the New Testament speaks of the return of Jesus more than it does creation, or the triune nature of God, or even the resurrection. We're given far more detail in Scripture on Jesus' second coming than on his first coming. The Christians of the early church lived as if they would not taste death. In John 14, Jesus says, that he's the groom, the church is the bride. Jesus left to prepare her a place, and when he's finished, he's obligated to return for his bride and escort her into his chambers. New Testament believers rightly understood that they weren't looking for the undertaker, they were looking for the upper taker. And that's how God wants every generation of Christians to live, as if we could be the last. A big part of following Jesus is being ready for his return. Paul writes here in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now realize, Paul had been with the Thessalonians just a very few weeks before his enemies had run him out of town. He must have taught them a cram course on Christianity. But there's only so much that a new believer can digest in a short period of time. There were vital, strategic beliefs and doctrines that Paul didn't have time to develop. And thus, when he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, he inquires about the church's spiritual welfare. And Timothy brings a report. He's detected some holes in their understanding of certain Bible doctrines. And according to chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's goal was to fill up what was lacking in their faith. And one of the deficiencies in their knowledge involved Jesus' return. Particularly, what happens to believers who die before he returns? Notice two important truths from verse 13. First, 
Paul speaks of the unbelieving pagan world of the first century as those who have no hope. The Roman belief in the afterlife was vague at best. You know, the best scenarios in the minds of the heathen masses was that death was a transport into the murky, shadowy, uncertain netherworld. Often the Greeks would place a coin in a deceased person's mouth to supply them ferry passage over the river Styx. One poet wrote, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. But the missing ingredient in Greco-Roman religion became the linchpin of Christianity. Jesus' own resurrection spawned the belief that all who follow him will also be resurrected. The idea of the resurrection from the dead revolutionized the pagan world. Realize Greeks had the flawed view of the human body. They considered it evil, the soul's prison. Eternal bliss, bliss was the spirit's escape from the body. But see, Jesus changed that thinking completely. He dignified human anatomy. While on earth, God took for himself a human body. God clothed himself with flesh. It can't be evil in and of itself. While among us, Jesus healed fevers and caused crippled legs to walk and fed hungry stomachs. He cared not only for people's souls, but for their bodies as well. For the Greeks, salvation was the soul's release from the body. But for Christians, salvation involves the resurrection of the body. Jesus defeated mankind's archenemy, death. The power of our living Lord Jesus eventually redeems everything that sin has spoiled, including these worn out, broken down old bodies. The Greek philosophers were willing to concede the existence of a spirit world. But to overcome death in the real world was a miracle that they refused to believe. You remember in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was on Mars Hill in Athens. The Greek philosophers were tracking with his sermon until he mentioned the resurrection. That was too much for their Greco-Roman pragmatism. And yet this is Christianity's central claim. This is the bold miracle that we believe in. The resurrection. Not only of Jesus' body, but of ours his believers, his followers as well. Notice a second truth from verse 13. Dead believers were said to have fallen asleep. Their flesh and blood body would one day rise again, but for the moment, their body was taking a nap, if you will. You remember, this was how Jesus spoke of his friend Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verse 11, he said, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Of course, at the time, Lazarus had been dead for four days. The New Testament uses the idiom of sleep for deceased believers. Their physiological consciousness is suspended temporarily as if they were asleep. Did you know that the Latin word cemetery, it means dormitory or sleeping place? That's what we call a cemetery, a sleeping place. This is why the bodies of Christian believers are buried to await the day when Jesus will resurrect us. The Christian tradition of burial highlights the dignity that Jesus bestowed on the human body and affirms our hope in the resurrection. I've told the people of our church to make sure I get buried 
when I die. I want to be buried. I think that honors the resurrection. My wife wants to cremate me and save the money. <laughs> she says, you're not going to worry about it when you're gone. I'm just going to have you cremated. I've told the elders of our church to make sure I get buried. <laughs> of course, I don't believe there's anything wrong or unbiblical with cremation. Why? It simply does in 20 minutes what nature accomplishes in 20 years. It just speeds up the process. We're still dust to dust. Even if you are cremated and your ashes are sprinkled on the sea or on the lake or wherever, or on home plate or wherever you get sprinkled, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is one day going to relocate those molecules and resurrect your body. The bodies of all believers, cremated or not, are merely asleep. But what about our spirit? What happens to the spirit when the body dies? Does it sleep? Does it fall into some kind of suspended animation? You know, some denominations, they teach this sort of doctrine. They call it soul sleep. But verse 14 gives us the answer to this question. It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Notice when Jesus returns, Paul says he brings with him those whose bodies sleep in Jesus. When a believer dies, their spirit leaves their body and enters heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, when Paul spoke of his impending death, he said that he would love to depart and be with Christ. That's what it meant to him, to be with Christ. This is what Paul calls death in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When I die, when you die as a believer, our spirit immediately exits our body and goes to be, to be with Jesus directly into his presence. It's do not pass go, do not collect $200, go straight into the presence of Jesus. Instantly, our sorrows were turned to joy. It's not my spirit that snoozes, it's my body. My spirit is alive with Jesus. This means that when Jesus returns, he's not coming for the spirits of those who've died beforehand. They're already in heaven. When he returns, he brings their spirit with him, Paul says, to rejoin their body, the body that he resurrects at that time. And understand what the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the body meant to the early Christians. This was why this whole question was looming in their minds. For the return of Jesus would be their moment of vindication. See, they were walking by faith. They were trusting in a God who is invisible. They had turned down earthly pleasures for blessings that are intangible. They had endured persecution for an eternal reward. They were strangers in their own cities because they longed for a land that was spiritual. And everybody around them thought they were crazy. Realized the return of Jesus was proof of their sanity. For they knew that when Jesus returns, everyone will see that what they were living for, what, the, what they had believed in, was all true. Jesus' coming is the believer's moment of victory and vindication. And this was why this question was looming on their minds. If I die before the rapture, will I miss my day of glory? Will I miss my day to shine? 
And Paul, Paul's answer is absolutely not. For he says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who are alive at the rapture have no advantage over those who died beforehand. For the Lord himself will descend with a, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who died before the Lord's return, whose bodies are now asleep in the ground, they get a head start. They rise first to be reunited with their spirits in the air. And why did the dead in Christ rise first? They got six feet further to go. That's why they get a head start. And I can think of no better reason than that. Imagine, though, the world, all over the world, cemeteries will suddenly be vacated. Tombstones will be toppled over. Concrete vaults will be opened. Decomposed bodies will spring to life. Urns will empty. Try to envision this. Cremated ashes will rise up from the ground. The molecules will be swirling through the air together and suddenly bodies will be reassembled in midair. A metamorphosis will take place. A miracle of resurrection for the world to see. In that moment, every believer from every age will celebrate our victory day. That's what the rapture means. And if that will be a thrill for the dead in Christ, imagine what that will be like for those believers who are alive on the earth at that time. I hope you know there is a generation of Christians who will never die. There is. When the Lord returns, he will snatch away those who belong to him. Notice again verse 16. It's the play-by-play -play of the rapture. Paul tells us what will happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. First, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Not a representative, not a chauffeur, not a personal aide. The Lord himself will come back to earth and take us home. He will descend himself. According to John 14, Jesus left her to prepare for us our eternal digs. He's been working on our mansion for 2,000 years. What a place it must be. And he personally is going to return to bring us home. Second, Paul says that Jesus descends with a shout. The word translated shout is a military term. It means to bark an order. Like a drill sergeant barking at the troops. Wow, how about that? My watch is wrong, it's not four. This could be the day. Like a drill sergeant barking at his troops, like a quarterback on the line of script. 898! 45! Omaha! Omaha! That's Peyton Manning, Omaha. Hut, hut, hut! I didn't. I, I, that was going back in. I, I wasn't sure I still had it, but I think I do. 
But when the rapture occurs, Jesus is going to bark out the snap count. And on hut, every Christian corpse is going to rise from its grave. And those who are alive at the time are going to assemble into the air. Nobody will be off sides. It's going to be great. Remember in John 11, verse 43, Jesus stood outside Lazarus' tomb. And you remember what he shouted? He said, Lazarus, come forth. It's been noted it's a good thing he said Lazarus. Or every corpse in the graveyard would have sprang to its feet. Well, at the rapture, Jesus is going to leave off Lazarus. And the bodies of all the saints from all the ages will rise. And then third, we'll hear the voice of an archangel. You know, angels announced Jesus' first coming in the fields outside Bethlehem. Apparently, their shouts will ring out around the world when Jesus returns for the church. And I believe those shouts will be audible. I really do. I'm expecting to know when the rapture occurs. I'm going to hear Jesus shout and I'm going to hear the voice of an archangel. Every year on the third Saturday in June, Spivey's Corner, North Carolina, hosts the National Hollering Contest. People come from all over the world to see who can holler the loudest. Promoters of the event say that hollering is the world's oldest form of communication. Well, on that day, Jesus, the day that Jesus returns for his church, Jesus is going to win hands down. He's going to holler the loudest. Jesus is going to belt out a shout like a Marine. Hoorah! Or like a cowboy on a roundup. Yeah! Or like a Spanish worship leader. <laughs> or whatever, whatever, whatever y'all do. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Jesus is going to holler louder, loud enough for everyone on earth to hear. I personally think that this is going to be an emotional release for Jesus. Think of all his pent-up feelings. Think of all the pent-up feelings that Jesus must have that he's yet to vent. The Savior loved you enough to die for you. And yet he hasn't had a chance to tell you face to face. I think when he gets the order to fetch his bride, he's going to come hollering. Today, Christians are guided by the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. But when we leave this world to go home, it'll be to a shout with the voice of the archangel. And with the trumpet of God. In ancient times, trumpets were used to rally the troops or to assemble the community or to begin annual festivities. A trumpet blast even announced the arrival of a special dignitary. And all these functions will be in operation when the rapture trumpet sounds. Every year, Jews celebrate their new year with the blast of a trumpet. The feast of Rosh Hashanah, or the feast of trumpets, begins when the priest blows the ram's horn, the shofar. In ancient times, it signaled to the workers in the fields that it was time to lay down their tools, leave the harvest, and come to the temple to worship. And this is exactly what the rapture means. When the trumpet of God sounds, Christianity's great harvest of souls will have ended. The church will enter the heavenly temple to worship Jesus forever. I'll never forget the night many years ago. 
we were meeting on Main Street there in the little village of Stone Mountain. There's a railroad tracks across the street. There's a little Main Street right out of some kind of Norman Rockwell picture. I had just finished up the Bible study that evening on biblical prophecy, end times prophecy. And we were just spending some time before the Lord, time in prayer. When in the distance, I heard this whistle. And I thought, this is it. That's the trumpet. And I literally was sitting there expecting my feet to rise off the floor. I actually looked down at my hand to see if it was dematerializing, you know, right before my very eyes. I was ready. That's when I heard the rumbling of a train on the train tracks across the street. What a letdown. I was ready for a liftoff. Instead, I got a letdown. But this is the anticipation that we need to always exhibit. Where every stray sound, every unidentifiable noise causes us to think that we're about to see Jesus. As Horatio Bonar once put it, each night as I draw the curtains, I look up at the night sky and say, perhaps tonight, Lord. And each morning when I see the dawning of a new day, I look out the window up at the sky and say, perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps tonight, perhaps today, the Lord could come at any time. We should live in a state of constant expectancy. And notice what the Lord does when he returns. He doesn't descend and touch down on the earth. The rapture is followed by the great tribulation. The world is judged for its unbelief. It's at the end of the judgment that Jesus puts his foot on terra firma to reign and rule. At the rapture, he comes in the clouds. He stops in the clouds. And at that time, Jesus performs perhaps his greatest miracle. Verse 17 describes to us what happens. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word translated caught up is the word harpazo. Now some skeptics like to point out that the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. And that's true unless you're reading a Latin Bible. In Latin, harpazo gets translated raptus. Harpazo means to snatch away or to seize up violently. Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to snatch us up. We'll be here one second and we'll be gone the next. You ever, have you ever seen a hesitating yo-yo? You ever thrown the yo-yo down and let it hesitate on the end of the string? How do you pull it up? One little yank of the finger. It pops back up to your hand. Well, Jesus is going to return in the clouds and he's going to yank up all us yo-yos. <laughs> right there on the spot. This one little yank of his finger. We're going to yank up these, us yo-yos. Or perhaps you've played jacks. You bounce a rubber ball and you see how many jacks you can pick up before the ball lands again. You snatch up off the floor. Well, Jesus is also going to play jacks. He's going to snatch up all the jacks and all the jills and all the sous and all the sows. It's going to be the invasion of the body snatcher. You know, I used to think that the rapture would be like a slow liftoff. You know, that we would rise a few inches off the ground and then 
we started sailing past treetops and birds and dodging airplanes and, you know, going through the clouds and all. But I no longer believe that's how it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice it happens in the twinkling of an eye. We are snatched up and transformed in a nanosecond. And how fast is a twinkle? Well, scientists compute that the shutter speed of the human eye is one-fiftieth of a second. But that's a blink. Jesus transforms us in a mere twinkle. The rapture is going to make the drive through at McDonald's feel like eternity. <laughs> I mean, Star Trek may have been right. Beam me up, Jesus. I think we'll dematerialize and then we'll reappear in heaven, in the clouds, inhabiting perfect, glorified bodies. Reminds me of the old country fella who lived out on the farm, never really made it into the big city until one day he decided he and his wife needed to go and visit. His wife wanted to go shopping at the new mall. Well, the old farmer, he dropped his wife off at the mall while he and his son, they went in to check into the hotel. Well, in the lobby, he saw this huge metal box. He had no idea it was the elevator, but he was so impressed by its size, he wondered what purpose it served. Well, soon, this older lady, this older female, elderly lady, she walked through the door into the box. Well, the door shut behind her. A few minutes later, the doors opened again, and out walked this young, beautiful blonde. Well, with a gleam in his eye, the old man turned to his son and shouted, Boy, you wait right here. I'm going to go get your mother and run her through that thing. <laughs> well, at the rapture of the church, our bodies will be changed. We'll be the envy of the most skilled plastic surgeons. Our bodies will have entirely new molecular structure. They'll be the same body in appearance, but they'll be new, transformed, uncontaminated by sin. No longer will our bodies be subject to disease or limited by time and space. Our bodies will have the capability Jesus had after he rose from the dead. You remember he walked through the walls into the, where the disciples were meeting. He, he covered distance instantly when he came back from the road to Emmaus and appeared in Jerusalem. I mean, I mean these are the bodies we're going to have. These corruptible bodies will put on incorruptibility. Think of the effect that the rapture will have on the world at large. Matthew 24, Jesus said, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Imagine Christians all over the world will suddenly vanish. A mass exodus of believers. The saints will split. The secretary goes on an errand and never comes back. Four people get into the elevator and only three step off. Eleven football players break the huddle and five never finish the play. I heard of a youth group that staged a fake rapture to fool their unsuspecting leader. They were at camp when the youth leader had gone to town to run some errands. 
But when he returned, the place was vacated. They put piles of clothes laying on the ground all over the camp as if folks wearing them had just passed through them. An empty motorboat was circling the lake. An unattended dinner was in the kitchen. That's when a well-timed phone call added to the effect. The voice on the other end shouted, What's happening? Everybody's missing over here. The director later admitted, he said, Wow, it really shook me up. One day, similar circumstances will occur, and it won't be a joke. Think of the disasters that will be caused by the unpiloted cars and trucks and planes. I always chuckle when I see one of those bumper stickers that says, Warning, in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. <laughs> but it will be no laughing matter when the world is reeling from panic and mayhem and disaster. I'm sure the scoffers will come up with all kinds of interesting explanations for all the missing people. Oh, it was an alien abduction. I'm sure you'll hear that. Well, hopefully you won't hear it. <laughs> Yet a lot of folks who, will be, who have been warned will suddenly be forced to do some serious thinking. Here's a poem that says it well. I think of times as the night draws near of an old house on a hill of a yard all wide and grassy where the children played at will. When deep night at last came down, hushing the merry din, mother would look around and ask, are all the children in? I wonder if when those shadows fall on the last short earthly day, when we say goodbye to the world outside, all tired of our childish play, when we meet the lover of our souls who died to save us from our sin, Will we hear him ask, as our mother did, are all the children in? I believe that's what our Lord Jesus will ask as he returns for his church. He'll turn to the Father and he'll ask him, are all the children in? I love the last line here in verse 17. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. I can recall spending all day outside playing in the neighborhood but there was something comforting about resting in my own house at night, in my own bed. This world can be a weary, fearful, painful place. But always remember, it's just temporary. Only our final destination is permanent, and Jesus has called it paradise. I love the wonderful promise we have in Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 18 tells us, therefore comfort one another with these words. Romans 11 verse 25 speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. The terminology marks a turning point in God's prophetic plan. Apparently, there is a set number of Gentiles who will come to Christ before God turns his attention again to Israel. And it's when that last Gentile enters into God's family... That's when the father will turn to his son and say, go get them. Let's get all the children in. It always excites me to think that the last lone holdout, the last Gentile could be here today. If you're the last holdout, what in the world are you waiting on? You're holding up the party, man. <laughs> You need to get saved so we can get on with so God can bring all the children in. 
What Jesus promises us is far better than anything this world can offer. Let me close by recalling two phrases here from Paul's wording in verse 15. Notice first he writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that he adds that? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, I don't know how cognizant he always was that he was pinning sacred scripture. You remember when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus in Troas. Bring the cloak. Now, I would imagine that verse was probably more motivated by the cold around him than the spirit within him. It's reasonable that though Paul wrote under the inspiration of God's spirit, he wasn't always conscious of the fact. Except here. For when he wrote about the rapture, he was adamant. He he added, I'm speaking to you by the word of the Lord. Don't, Don't miss it. This is the word of the Lord. My point is the return of Jesus and the rapture of the church are big deals to God. And, it, and this doctrine needs to be a big deal to us. Martin Luther once said, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. And today will matter more if we live it in the light of that day. And notice the other statement Paul makes here in verse 15. He fully expects to participate in the rapture. He says that we, we, he includes himself, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Writing in the first half of the first century, Paul was fueled by the belief that he was living in the last days. Paul counted on being one of the people who avoided death. Some folks might claim that Paul was duped or that he played the fool. That couldn't be further from the truth. It was God's intention for Paul to live as if his day was the last day, just as it is God's desire for us to do the same. Understand, what made Harold Camping a false prophet wasn't believing in the rapture. It wasn't getting excited about the rapture or believing that he would experience the rapture. He was unbiblical because he claimed to know more than Jesus did and set a date. To live a successful Christian life We need to live every single minute of every day in anticipation of our Lord's return. For it is this expectation that breeds godliness. I've met Christians who were apathetic and blasé about the rapture. As if they were afraid to get their hopes up. We better get our hopes up. It's hope that helps. How can you live without hope? 1 John 3 verse 3 speaks of seeing Jesus and concludes, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. The rapture is a purifying hope. What if my mother-in-law told me that she was going to drop by my house sometime next Saturday? That would be cruel and unusual punishment. (laughs) That would be awful. I'd be thinking, give me an exact time so I can be ready for you and then get on with the stuff I really want to do. But to just tell me sometime next Saturday, that forces me to not only clean up my house, but to keep it spick and span all day long. (laughs) The mere possibility that my mother-in-law could arrive any minute keeps me on my toes all day. 
And knowing that Jesus might return at any moment should have the same kind of cleansing effect on us. If I really believe that Jesus is coming back, I'll stay focused. I'll be ready. I'll avoid the shortcuts and say no to temptation. I believe living in light of the Lord's return is crucial to any Christian spiritual growth. 30 years ago, whenever I signed off with one of my friends, I'd usually say, see you here, there, or in the air. You remember saying that? See you here, there, or in the air. It reflected the expectancy that we all should possess. My treasure was in heaven. My hope was to see Jesus. My dream was his presence. Then I got a mortgage. And then I had some kids. And then I started paying college tuition. You see, you get caught up in the here and now. And you forget about the day you're going to get caught up in the clouds. Let's not lose our anticipation. Has our love for Jesus grown cold? Have our friends been told? The next time you and I meet, it might really be in the air.